Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. In the year 1986, a man by the name of Cliff Young turned up. He was going to run the ultramarathon from Sydney to Melbourne. It's a long, long marathon, obviously, over 800 kilometres. And the people who were going to run the ultramarathon, they turned up and they had their gear on. They looked very flash. And they had their running shoes on, very flash. And they had the sponsor's name on, very flash. Cliff Young turned up and he wasn't flash. He had a loose white shirt on. On top of that, he had some faded overalls. And he had a hat on, or sort of a baseball cap with flowing stuff down there to stop sunstroke or something. And on his feet he had boots with galoshes on. And when he turned up with all these runners and athletes, everybody laughed. They thought he was a novelty joke, but he wasn't. He was serious. And eventually they pinned a number on him and he set off. Five days... 15 minutes, four, 15 hours, five days, 15 hours, four minutes later, he crossed the line first. He was 10 hours ahead of the others. There are a couple of reasons for this, and that is that, first of all, he was a very poor shepherd, and he didn't own a horse, he couldn't afford a horse. So very often he would just run after his mob and he would look after his mob and he would always be running with them or after them. But there's another reason. He didn't realise that in an ultramarathon you actually stopped at night. You know, I mean, most people stop and sleep and relax. He didn't realise that. And that's why he won the race. And he was 10 hours ahead of the rest. They looked better, but he won the race. My subject this morning, based on the letter of our risen Lord to the church in Thyatira, is never give up. Our reading is from Revelation chapter 2, and I'm going to ask a young gentleman by the name of Theodore to come and take the reading. I'll be working today from the New International Version. Thanks, Theo. Theo was baptized last year. That was pretty cool. Want me to help you? You're okay? Yeah. <clears throat> um, I'm reading from, oh, I guess it's already up there, um, Revelation 2, 18 to 29. To the angel of the church of Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her into a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways." I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and that I will pay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, 
to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thanks, Theo. This isn't a Goodwin family reunion, by the way. (laughs) Theo's our oldest grandson. And we didn't put this service together. Just an explanation, just in case. You know the name Winston Churchill... He was asked to go back to his old school, Eton, in the United Kingdom, and to address the students. And it was a very short address, and basically what he said was this, never give up or never give in. Never give in. Never, 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 never. That's a short message, but it's a good one, and it seems to me that that is a message that's written over these seven churches, the message to the seven churches. One of the interesting things is, and you will find this in Revelation chapter 1, that the whole of the book is written to the seven churches. If you go to chapter 1, you will find that's clearly what it says, and it says that it's writing to the seven churches. But when you come to chapters 2 and 3, you find it itemized individually to each of those churches. Pliny was an ancient historian, and Pliny says that Thyatira, the place to which this letter is written, was an unimportant town. It wasn't big, it wasn't flash, it was in one way important. It was a trade route between Sardis and Pergamum, and last week Nick reminded us that Pergamum was the capital of the district. And it's interesting that to this, the least important city, we have the longest letter. Because the letter to Thyatira is longer, twice as long as any of the others. And so there is, of course, some kind of emphasis upon the church in Thyatira. Now, as we go into the book, there are just a few things that I want to mention I can't cover everything. A lot of the background has already been covered by the teaching team. But I just want to mention that there's encouragement. In verse 19, this is what the angel says, to the angel or to the messenger of the church at Raleigh Street. And Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. In other words, it was a growing church, and they were working really hard at becoming better at what they were doing. It was a good church. But one of the things about a good church is it's not a perfect church, and it's not a perfect church. And to almost all of these seven churches, you find that some, there's some kind of reproof. 
Because you see, even a good church, like Raleigh Street, I will say, even a good church can be better. And so as the risen Lord is writing to the church at Thyatira and to us, because all the word of God is to all of us, you actually find that they're growing. But they can be better. But it's an encouragement. The Lord knows what's going on here. The Lord approves of the things that are good, that are going on here, and we can all be encouraged. I know your works. But there's a warning, and you find it in verses 20 to 23, and it's about a woman called, uh, called Jezebel. The threat to the church there is not from outside, although, of course, the days were difficult days. And there was a lot of persecution. And even as he wrote this letter, John himself was exiled because of the gospel, because he preached the gospel, exiled to Patmos. Patmos, very close to, close to Ephesus. And you've heard about Ephesus. And Jezebel is in the church. And very often, ladies and gentlemen, the biggest threat that we face is not from them out there. They are friends. Sometimes the biggest threat is from within the church. There's this person called Jezebel, and you read about her in 1 Kings chapter 21. Quick resume. Ahab was the big king of Israel. He was married to Jezebel. There's a man called Naboth who has a nice vineyard very close to the castle. And Ahab, the great king, he actually wants the vineyard, and he goes and he tries to negotiate with Naboth for the vineyard, but Naboth won't do that. He won't sell it. He wants to keep it for himself. And I just find it quite interesting as you come here. Jezebel came in and asked him, why are you so sullen? It says in this verse, he lay, now here's the big king of Israel, remember, he lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. Know anyone like that? Fortunately, I don't, but I can imagine it, you know. And so he's like, oh, give me the vineyard. And Jezebel says, well, get up from bed. Don't sulk like a baby. I'll get it. And so she manipulates things and sets Naboth up to be killed. He's killed, and so Ahab gets his vineyard. She was not a nice person. And so the threat is this idolatry and sexual immorality. She was introducing it into that good church at Thyatira. I was interested to read Moffat's translation and he talks about that Jezebel of a woman. So there is a warning, but there's also a message and you find that in verses 24 and 25 of the passage that we have under scrutiny this morning. And now our Lord, risen in glory, says, Now I say to the rest of you, so it's not the people who followed Jezebel, but I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. And it's interesting, isn't it, how we hear things that we've never heard before and the deep secrets. Well, they had deep secrets. They'd never heard these things from Paul or any of the apostles before, but they're Satan's. And he said, 
I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have. Only hold on to what you have until I come. It's a long time since I was at school and it's a long time since some of you were at school. Do you, do you remember what an imperative is? You know, like you read something and it's a command and the, uh, grammarians call it an imperative. So this is an imperative. Like, for example, if I said to you, stand up, that would be imperative. That's a command. But if I said, you are sitting down, that's not an imperative. Now, here's the imperative. To the church at Thyatira, and it may be the message of Christ, it is the message of Christ to us here at Rally Street, and that is, hold on to what you have. Now, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, we read that God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church. Now, in those days, of course, they didn't have Bibles in their laps. It was still being written. Very few people, maybe a synagogue, could afford the whole of the Old Testament, but basically it was read. And so when a letter was written by Paul or Peter or, in this case, the risen Lord, because the book of Revelation is from Christ, about Christ, you actually find that the letter was read out to the church because they didn't have a copy themselves and a lot of them couldn't read. But God blesses the one who reads the word of this prophecy to the church and he blesses all who listen to its message and obey what it says for the times near. And so here's the imperative, obey what it says. Or if you like, it's a command, obey what it says. And that is my text for this morning. It's the main imperative. There's another one you find in the formula at the end, but this is the main thing. Now, this morning I just want to take it under three headings, and so you don't lose heart, I'm going to emphasize the first. So, you know, if I'm going on a bit, and you say, well, it's only the first, first. <laughs> well, anyway, that's the longest bit. As I approach this imperative, I want to try to point out three things, and the first thing is it is necessary. The second thing, it is possible. And the third thing is, it's worth it. Hold on to what you have, and we find that it's necessary to do that. Now, you will notice that when he says, hold on to what you have, we're not actually told what it is that we have to hold on to. I'm glad about one thing, however, and that is, it doesn't refer to salvation. He's not saying, hold on to salvation, or you can lose it. Because, you see, salvation is secure in Jesus. And when we're saved, it's called an eternal salvation. It's not an off-and-on salvation. And God doesn't play cat and mouse with his people to see if he can have fun bashing us around. I mean, God's like that. Our, risen, our Lord himself before he rose, the same one who writes this letter, says regarding disciples like you, if you are a disciple, if you are a believer in Jesus, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Now, the word never is stressed in the original. Now, you possibly, probably know that the New Testament is written in Koine Greek. 
and sometimes the positioning of the words in the sentence show which words are to be stressed. And in this particular sentence, the word never is to be stressed. And so you can translate it this way if you wish. I give them eternal life and they will never, ever, never, ever perish. No one can snatch them away from me, for my Father has given them to me. And he's more powerful than anyone else. No one else can snatch them from my Father's hand. It was Martin Luther who said our view of salvation is very much like that of an animal. And he uses this illustration. He says, some people's understanding of salvation is like that of a monkey. And, you have a, and the mother monkey has a little monkey, and the little monkey holds on for grim death like that to the mother. And if he lets go, he's going to fall to the ground and he could die. So he holds on for grim death. He said, the other picture of salvation is that of a lion. And when a lion is carrying her baby... She grabs it by the nape of the neck and holds it, and you can never take that baby away. And he said, that's the picture of salvation in the New Testament. So when our risen Lord, the one who said this, when our risen Lord says, hold on to what you have, he's not referring to salvation, but the difficulty is he doesn't actually tell us what we hold on to. And I have a reference written out in my notes here. And it's actually from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, written by St. Paul. Gwenda doesn't like me sometimes saying St. Paul sounds very Catholic. She says, I'd make a very good Catholic. <laughs> and I, th I could do, actually, you know, because I get fascinated by relics. I know that they are a fraud. Well, I don't want to get too harsh, but it could be a fraud. I remember being in the Almal. No, I won't go into that. <laughs> but, you know, anyway, I say it actually because there are, and or there could be people in the audience, and when you talk about Paul, they don't have a clue who Paul is. There was actually a lady who was saved in those seats down there a few years ago, and she didn't in those days own a Bible. She got saved, and um, she was head of department of St. Paul's in Hamilton. She gave me permission to talk about it. She's not ashamed by that. But it was about six months later, and we were having coffee in the cafeteria area, and she was talking to me, and she said, I'm reading through, she said, Corinthians, I imagine, 1 Corinthians. She said, I'm reading through Corinthians, and I hadn't realized that it was written by Paul, and I teach at St. Paul's. You know, and some people don't know who Paul was, anyway, so occasionally I mention that. It's written by St. Paul, and having made that comment, maybe I'll read it. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Isn't that wonderful? You have been blessed in the heavenly realms with every blessing of the Spirit in Christ. And then he talks about these blessings. He talks about forgiveness and love and favor and redemption and enlightenment. So what are we to hold on to? We have so many blessings, and ladies and gentlemen, never forget the blessings that have been heaped on you and heaped on me because of our belief in Jesus. I'd like to just take three. And those of you who know or have read 1 Corinthians 13 will recognize these words, faith, hope, and love. And so I just want to take, by way of application, these three things as things to which we must hold 
firmly, and the first is faith. I was reading a book by Philip Yancey, and he's talking about reading the whole of the New Testament and looking at or the Gospels particularly, and looking at the miracles and the matter of faith. And he said the interesting thing is that when you look at the faith comments of Jesus, very often they're directed to people you wouldn't expect them to direct them to, a centurion. He's a Gentile. And to the Canaanite woman, she's a Gentile. You've got great faith. And people that you would expect to always have a lot of faith sometimes falter. John the Baptist, are you the one? Peter, I don't know the man. Expletive, expletive. And then he summarizes it by saying this, that is, Yancey. A curious law of reversal seems to be at work in the Gospels. Faith appears where least expected and falters when it should be thriving. And I just wonder this morning, and I ask quietly, I wonder if there's somebody here and your faith is faltering at the present time. You don't know whether it's worth it. Things are hard for you at home. And at work they curl the lip at you when they know that you're a believer. And you wonder if it's worth coming to church because, well... It's sometimes difficult. Faith is important. To follow faith, to, to your belief in Jesus to take legs, as it were, and actually act upon your belief. It's quite interesting as you go into Isaiah chapter 7 and you find the same Ahaz, he's being threatened by another king. And Isaiah, and the reference is Isaiah chapter 7, says, be careful, keep calm and don't be afraid, do not lose heart. And then in verse 9 he says, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Never give up. I'm going to read this because it's got statistics and things in it, figures and I don't want to have to memorize them all. And this is actually from a book. It's called Never Alone by Max Licado. And this is what he says. Bill Irwin was the first person to walk the Appalachian Trail. Other adventurous souls have hiked the 2,100 miles. I worked that out as 3,560 kilometers. But he was the first in this respect. He was blind when he did it. He was 50 years old when, in 1990, he set out on the hike. A recovering alcoholic and committed Christian... He memorized 2 Corinthians 5 and 7 and made it his mantra. For we walk by faith and not by sight. And that's what he did. He did not lose, use maps, GPS, or a compass. It was just Irwin, his German shepherd, and the rugged terrain of the mountains. He estimated that he fell 5,000 times, which translates into an average of 20 times a day for eight months. He baffled hypothermia, cracked his ribs, and skinned his hands and knees more times than he could count, but he made it. He made the long walk by faith and not by sight. And ladies and gentlemen, you can't see God. You live by faith. And you can't see the cross of Jesus. You live by faith. And you cannot see the coming of Jesus yet. You live by faith. But it's the things that we believe that can make us strong. It's the things that we believe that keep us from giving up. 
It's the things that we believe that keep us going on and on and on and on until we die or until the Lord comes. So hold on to faith and hold on to hope. You see, secular hope wants a better future. Biblical hope knows of a better future. And we have a wonderful future. Hold on to love. And St. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 13, 13, three things will last forever, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Is that true of you? And I ask myself, is that true of me? I mean, do I live a loving kind of life? Or do I get easily embittered? And it could be that we have someone here and the Spirit of God is speaking to you this morning and you feel very bitter. Something was said, maybe inadvertently, but you feel very bitter and you had to force yourself to come to church because, well, if that's what Christians are like, I'm not going to go to church, you know. But we have to show love even when we feel hurt and we show love to others even when we want to get revenge. Hold on to love. Now, the question is, why is it necessary to hold on to what we have? And I'd like to suggest three things. And the first is, it's very easy to let go. And when the pressures come, it's easy to loose the hands and just let go. Our Lord talks about seed that's actually sown on the ground and there's one particular kind of ground and things go really well but the pressures come and the worries come and these other things of life come and they don't grow anymore, they die. It's easy to let go. And you actually find our Lord Jesus Christ, or rather this is Paul, he says, Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies that were made about you so that by recalling them you may fight the battle well. Holding on to faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to their faith among Hymenius and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. And maybe you are at the stage today of wondering whether you're going to hold on because things are tough. Well, God says to us through the writings of Paul, hold on to faith. So it's necessary to hold on to these things, the things that we believe, the things that are basic to our faith and lifestyle. And the second is that we are very often assailed by deceptive teaching. I mean, that's one of the confusing things that we find today. There's so much teaching. I mean, what do you believe? I mean, in that church there, there was a Jezebel and she was teaching idolatry and she was teaching sexual immorality. And the third thing is we battle against dark forces. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, ladies and gentlemen, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And you may feel that things are against you and you may blame anyone for 
And sometimes it can be satanic. I don't look for Satan everywhere, don't look for demons everywhere, but I'm aware that sometimes he and his emissaries are at work. So it's necessary to hold on very quickly. It's possible to hold on. And I like to mention three things, and I'll do it quickly. I have to do it quickly. And the first is this, keep on growing and you find the church there, they were growing. What does it mean to keep on growing? It means that there are two words. One is new and the other is better. You do new things. You think new things. You try new things. You attempt new things. You explore new territory. And there's another word, and that is that you do it better. And you may be doing something now, but to grow means you do it better. You put more work into it. But anyway, and keep your joy alive. Here's an interesting verse. Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it to self-safeguard your faith. And ladies and gentlemen, it's by maintaining that joy in Jesus that keeps you from falling. It keeps you from letting go. And when you rejoice in what you believe, and when you rejoice in your fellowship, and when you rejoice in the Lord you are kept safe in the faith. And the next thing is, keep your consecration alive. We're going to take part in the Lord's Supper shortly. And I can think of no better way to keep our consecration to Christ alive. So when we take it, we actually recommit ourselves to Christ and we say, you gave your body for me. Thank you. I give myself to you. You gave your blood for me. Thank you. I give myself to you. Thank you. Thank you. And it's a great way to keep your consecration to Christ alive. Lastly, and you can see I'm going quite fast, it's worth holding on to what you have, building on what Nick said last week. And I'm just going through here now. Just make comment. One more comment before I... Well, it might be two. Um, one is, I will give you the morning star... We know that the saints will rule the world. We know that. But what does it mean to actually receive the morning star? I believe what it means is you receive the fullness of Christ himself for all eternity. Because as you go to the end of the book of Revelation, we have these words, I am the root and offspring of David and the bright morning star. And our future is in Christ. Isn't that wonderful? And we'll be with the Lord forever. Isn't that wonderful? He's the morning star. He's the one who will have for all eternity. And he'll hold on to us for all eternity. Now, there's a formula right at the end. And it says this, and this is slide number 16. Whoever has ears, that means everybody. I don't think, probably no, nobody here has no ears. But anyway, whoever has ears, that includes everyone, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let, him, let them hear. That's an imperative. That is pay attention and obey the imperative. Are you going to do it? Are you going to hold on? Or are you going to let go? In the next slide, we have a suggested prayer, and it goes like this. Lord, you know my life and my heart. You know I want to serve you with loyalty and love until you come for me. At present, I'm struggling with, and just say to the Lord what it is that you're struggling with, and please help me in this. I now reaffirm that Jesus Christ is my Lord. 
I pray in his name. So we're going to have a minute now of silent prayer, and that may represent how you feel. If so, pray it in your heart to the Lord. But also, pray to the Lord and thank him for the bread and for the cup. If you're a believer, take it with thanksgiving. And so you just in your heart say, Lord, thank you. Thank you for the bread. Thank you for the body of Jesus. Thank you for the cup. Thank you for the blood. We're redeemed by that blood. Thank you. So let's all pray in whichever way, the Spirit, as the Spirit of God has spoken to us this morning, maybe whispered to us or shouted as, at us. Let's just pray to the Lord responding now. We don't want to go away and do nothing. We want to put it into action. So let's pray for one minute and we give personal thanks to the Lord and then I'll lead the congregation. Lord, as we come to the climax of the service this morning, we want to say thank you. Thank you for sending your son. And we say thank you that he died for us. Thank you for the bread. Thank you for the wine. Thank you for all it means. We pray in the holy name of your son, who by your grace is our saviour, Jesus. Amen.